invite you all now to open your Bibles in the book of Esther. We proceed our march through that book. Today, if my math is correct, is the fifth of ten sermons, so we're reaching the halfway mark, even though we're not at the halfway mark of the chapters, but we'll get there. We'll cover all of them. Today we have ahead of us chapter four, the entire chapter. We'll read it and then hear what God has to say about it. Esther, book of Esther, chapter 4. Receive this with faith and with love. This is the word of our God. Thus says the Lord to us in Esther, chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's commands and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went, went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasures, treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and commend her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court Without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself, that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silence at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them, to reply to Mordecai, Go, 
Gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Little Johnny comes running to his father, shouting, Dad, Dad, today in class our teacher showed us the earth. It's a blue globe floating in space. Can you believe that? Dad, Dad, how can that be? What holds up the world in its place? Why doesn't it all just fall down? Dad, without thinking, which is usually the ruin of dads, answers, it's a camel that holds up the world, son. That settles it for a while. Still, the mental gears kept spinning and curiosity was not quenched. The next day, Johnny comes back. Dad, dad, if a camel holds up the world, what holds up the camel? Uh-oh, dad thinks. Praying that a quick answer turneth away further questions, dad quickly shoots back. It's it's a kangaroo that holds up the camel. You know where this is going. Johnny returns now after a few minutes, not hours, and you can start to hear some doubt creeping up in his tone. Dad, if a camel holds up the world and a kangaroo holds up the camel, what holds up the kangaroo? This has to stop, Dad thinks. What's the biggest animal out there? Okay, Johnny, the truth is it's an elephant that holds up the kangaroo. Just, Johnny doesn't even bat an eye. Dad, come on. What holds up the elephant then? In a stroke of genius, Dad looks deeply into Johnny's eyes. With a serious and serene but serene tone that only great gurus and wise men possess, almost in a whisper, he says, Son, it is elephant all the way down. I first heard this story from a Christian philosophy book titled Naming the Elephant. The author, James Sire, uses this story to talk about what we know about the world, what we believe about reality, and what kind of bearing this knowledge and belief has on our daily lives. How does that change us? And that is precisely the dynamic we see in our text today. As we read Esther 4, I hope you noticed the elephant in the room. Or actually, the absence of an elephant. The book of Esther has not mentioned God in its first three chapters. But you would expect at least a passing mention when the story becomes a plea for the safety of God's people. Isn't that a bit striking? It should be. Yet maybe it isn't because we can be a little bit like that too, can't we? In times of crisis, someone once said, 
for all our orthodox theology, our first response is frequently the whimper of resignation or human strategy, strategy rather than the bark of robust faith in God. If that is the case, and I believe it is so, it is so our text today presents us with this question, how do we connect what we believe to what we do? Today, as we see how Esther and Mordecai did that, or rather failed to, we will learn that God's promises assure us he will sustain us through this life. Again, God's promises assure us he will sustain us through this life. We'll see that in two points this morning. First, if there is no God, it is every Persian for himself. Again, if there is no God, it is every Persian for himself. Last week, we closed our text hearing of chaos and confusion in Susa. Today, we actually see it. People walking around in sackcloth with ashes on their heads, on their faces. Jews throughout the entire empire fasting. And in the streets, you could probably hear the sound of weeping and wailing. At the entrance of the emperor's office, we find Mordecai crying out a loud, bitter cry. He refused to bow to Haman, the Amalekite, and now everyone he loves will die. Well, 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 if it isn't the consequences of his own actions. Mordecai, of course, being always a good Persian official, does not go into his desk, his place of work at the king's gate, but he stays on the outside because he was against the law to go into the king's palace in a state of mourning. Before the sight of the king in this world, everyone must be happy all the time. The emperor says, smile, and you say, how wide. Nevertheless, Mordecai goes as close as he can to Esther. She's the queen, right? When rubber hits the road, Mordecai resorts to politics, to power plays, Maybe Esther will come to his aid, and perhaps she can appeal to a hazardous. Still, as it is right now, all the queen has to offer is some clothes, so he will stop making a scene for himself. Quite a pathetic offer, if I may say so. After Mordecai refuses that offer, Esther realizes something is wrong, and then she sends someone to investigate. And at this point, you should pause and look at the text, and, and you should notice how often the eunuch Hathak is mentioned in this chapter. Way more times than God, but still, whether by name or indirect reference. Esther has so isolated herself from her community that even to talk to her family she needs a mediator. In fact, she only needs to investigate the issue because she does not even know what's happening. Why would a queen need to know the problems of the peasants? 
Moreover, she has hidden her Jewishness so well that no one bothered to tell her that all Jews would die soon. The edict of destruction did not come to Esther's mailbox. So the eunuch goes back and forth a couple of times. Mordecai explains everything to her. He talks about Haman's plan, sends her a copy of the edict, and then presents his two-step plan for success. First, go to the emperor. Two, beg for our lives. That's all they can do right now. Mordecai's only hope for an intervention from a hazard is an intervention from a hazardous, which you can all agree at this point of the book is a terrible and miserable place to be. And if one's fate is ultimately controlled by the emperor, you go to him when, all, when no one else can help, right? If a hazardous is the elephant holding the kangaroo holding the camel, when the world is crumbling, you go to him, right? Not so fast, cowboy. Esther replies, look, she says, Theoretically, yes, I could go. But all the Persians out there, of all the Persians out there, you, of all of them, should know, Uncle Mord, that if one goes to the emperor without being summoned, one quickly joins those two eunuchs that plotted against him in chapter 2. To make it worse, she continues, the king has not summoned me in a month. And we can all assume he has not been sleeping alone for 30 days. Maybe he's getting tired of me. Could I go? I mean, yes. But should I? If Mordecai's lack of concern about what God could do for him leads him to pull all the strings within his reach, Esther's similar lack of faith leads her to crawl back to her safe space. Well, 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 she could have thought, Uncle Mord. I'm safe here. By the way, do you remember who told me to hide my identity in the first place? In different ways, when Esther and Mordecai faced a dragon seeking to devour their people, they both seemed to resort to either figuring out their own way or simply holding fast to whatever they have right now, hoping that it will not take, be taken away from them. There was mourning, we hear. There was crying, groaning, and wailing. But there were no cries for God, for Yahweh, for the God of the people of the Jews to save them like he had done so many times. However, one commentator has a great point on Esther's reply that I think can bring a lot of comfort for us. At first, when you read this story, and if you're reading this for the first time and you don't know what's going to happen, Esther should be hesitant. It's easy to understand why she's doing it. It's her life that's going to be on the line. Since most of us are familiar with the rest of the story, it's easy for us to think, of course you should go, silly. Ahasuerus loves you. You'll be fine. 
But you have to remember that Aster has not read Aster yet. <laughs> she has been hiding for five years. As we said before, she has probably broken all the laws in the Old Testament. We're very close to that. Her main occupation in life for five years is to wait for a call to lie in the bed of a pagan, uncircumcised man. Why would God show any favor, any protection for her now after all she has done or failed to do? And maybe today you're here wondering the same thing about your life. Could God really use someone like me after everything I've done or everything I failed to do? Can God use me to reach my neighbors after my last and Christ-like behavior towards them? Can God use me to invite my co-workers to come to church after five years working here without anyone know I'm actually a Christian? Can God use me to disciple my children after all the bad examples I have set for them? Can God use such a sinner? Sisters and brothers, let me tell you something this morning. God will use Esther. God will use Mordecai. As unaware as they are of him right now, he will use them, despite their assimilation into the empire and their spiritual blindness. God has worked through all kinds of sinners through his sovereign providence ever since sin entered this world. And one commentary quickly adds, after all, this is all the material he has. If our sin could stop God from working, we would all be in a spot more terrible and miserable than Mordecai and Esther having to depend on a hazardous. Yes, God will work through his means to sanctify you, to make you holy, to make you look like Christ. Yet, he does not expect you to be completely holy and unblemished before you put your hands into work. We work for him as he works through us, not after. We don't have to fend for ourselves, cowering in fear or resorting to man-made schemes to revert our fortunes. Meanwhile, Esther and Mordecai are debating what they can do since apparently they cannot count on God. I mean, we know they can, so why won't they? Why would two Jews not trust God for help when help is so much needed? This will lead us to our final point this morning. God is the elephant keeping us all afloat. Again, God is the elephant Keeping, all, keeping us all afloat. We'll see that in verses 12 through 17. Mordecai's plan does not get a positive answer from his cousin. 
Finally, then, he plays his last and final card and sends her a message that is among the most well-known passages of the book in verses 13 and 14. And before we look into that deeply, I think I have to say believers through all the ages have appreciated Mordecai's words only because they assume something that he never actually says. Let's take a closer look at the speech. First, he says that if Esther fails to do anything, relief and deliverance will rise from another place. But what place is that, Mordecai? You don't trust any other authority besides Ahasuerus that could stop the upcoming slaughter. The only way these words make sense, and to us that is very obvious, right? Is if he believes that there is a God that will protect his people because he has made a covenant with them. He promised to protect them. But does Mordecai mention that or that God? He doesn't. Second, he tells Esther that if she fails to act, you and your, your father's house will perish. Mordecai believes there will be some kind of divine retribution in case of Esther's omission. Still, we must ask, where would this justice come from? Again, we know, but Mordecai doesn't say anything about it. Finally, in his most famous words and probably one of the most misused verses in the Old Testament, Mordecai asks Esther, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. How can Mordecai believe this that he just said? How can Mordecai believe that this or that or anything happens for a reason and not merely by luck or chance? This question only makes sense. The world only makes sense. History only makes sense. Everything we say and do only makes sense if we believe a supreme author is writing the story of this world. Mordecai seems to assume that, but the elephant keeping his world afloat remains unnamed. Still, Despite deep logical and theological flaws, God uses sinners, and his words seem to reach Esther. Her answer marks a turnaround from the assimilated queen to the hero of the faith, which so many of us grew up admiring and had not found yet in the book, to be honest. She calls all the Jews in Susa to fast on her behalf for three days, we begin to tax with Mordecai ordering her around, and now she's the one calling the shots. And then, after three days of fasting, day and night, without food or drink, then she will go to a hazardous, uninvited, knowing full well the risks. Yet, for all her courage, Esther still commits the same mistakes as Mordecai. Think about it. Why would they fast? So that they would be hungry? 
so that she would go looking weak and hungry to the king who loved her because of her beauty? This would make no sense at all unless they believe that fasting has some kind of spiritual power. Still, they call for a fast, and they do. For what? She never says. And we now hit one of the nerves exposed throughout this entire book. While our heroes do what we expect them to do, they never seem to do it in the name of him who would be and should be their ultimate hope for salvation. Why, we finally get to ask and try to answer, is there an unnamed elephant in the room throughout this entire book? As I alluded before, it is because something we are all too familiar with and we don't have to travel back to Persia to understand why. In the words of Ian Duguid, Old Testament scholar, this text asks us, how can people confess an orthodox creed week after week after week? How can these people so easily and completely lose track of the implications of that theology whenever problems emerge in daily life. Why do we go on living in this world on Monday, forgetting everything we confess about our God on Sunday? Duguid proceeds, when life-threatening illness strikes, or when we are faced with a choice between compromise and losing our job, or when someone we love abandons us, do we live out the theology we proclaim? And that, my friends, is precisely the danger of assimilation. And this is why we have been talking about the danger of assimilation from day one in this book. Because we live in this empire, we get used to it, we build our houses according to imperial regulations, which means including bronze ceilings to live under. And then we look up and that's all we see and we forget that there is someone above our ceilings. We get used to just looking down Like Esther and Mordecai, we live so far away from the place where we should be that when we lift our eyes to the hills, as the psalm says, all we see is Susa, the citadel. We do that every day, and then we forget that there is a heavenly city on a hill to which we all belong. We look up, and we see a hazardous all the way down holding this world. So when tragedy strikes, we don't even pray. We plead to the king. Whoever you are, 
And whatever circumstance you're facing today, let me tell you something. Look beyond the empire. This is the call that this book has been issuing in us for the past five sermons. You need to call directly on God to bring the presence of His Spirit into your life. And you do it in the name of Him who holds the universe together in His hands, our help who came from above because we could never go up to Him. You do it in the name of Jesus. That's the name we were looking for all this time. You see, when Esther finally shows up, some courage, resigned and tentative as it was, she is pointing us to Jesus, the Savior we all need. Someone greater than Esther, to go before someone greater than Ahasuerus. Friends, when tragedy strikes, we need to run and return to Jesus. As we heard this earlier in the call to worship, return to him. Do you know why? We see that in our text. You see, to be our savior, Jesus didn't just say, if I perish, I perish. He said, when I perish, I will perish to save my people. And he did. He perished. As the late Tim Keller once said, Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk living and leaving an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate and heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life up to save his people. He took upon himself the edict of destruction that we deserve the one we deserve for failing to acknowledge him or failing to go to him when he need, we need him the most. He carried on the cross the price of our spiritual blindness. He paid with his blood the cost of us forgetting who created this world, who upholds it in the palm of his hands, and who can save us from perishing. Now, since he has done that, we can run to him in times of need. We can hold fast the confession that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, will also with him graciously give us all things. The prophecy from Joel 2 that we read earlier in the service concludes with a question strikingly similar to something we've heard today. He says, Who knows whether he will not return, will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him? At this side of the cross and of the resurrection, we know the answer to that question. He has relented. He has sent a blessing for us. That blessing has a name. That name is Jesus. Return to him. All of you. Return to him with all your heart. For he is gracious and merciful.
Let us pray. God of all grace, in whose hands are life and death, by whose power we are sustained, and by whose mercy we are spared, look down upon us with compassion today. Forgive us for neglecting, neglecting the duty you assign to us, and letting the days and hours we must give account to, we must give account for, pass away without any endeavor or attempt to accomplish your will. Make us remember, O God, that every day is your gift and ought to be used according to your command. Grant us, therefore, so to repent of our negligence that we may obtain mercy from you and pass the time which you shall yet allow us in diligent performance of your commands through Jesus Christ, in whose name we always pray and we say together, Amen. Amen.